Good morning. Welcome again to In Town Church. Uh, I'm the pastor here, although you may have been here for a few weeks. I haven't been in the pulpit. Uh, and when you speak for a living and you don't have the chance to speak regularly, you just kind of accumulate words. So on Friday, I had about four sermons worth of notes. So I think I've kind of compressed that down, so I hope I'll save you from an hour-long sermon. But it's great to be back in the pulpit. It's great to be able to share uh, from the gospel of Luke. And we are now here in chapter 19, and this is our gospel reading. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, you are the mighty God who guides our lives with mercy and love. You are holy and you are perfect and your grace is boundless and free. Would you make room in our hearts to receive you this morning? We are here from so many different backgrounds. Some of us are followers, eager to serve, ready to worship. Others are struggling and anxious and sad and lonely. And we need you to stoop with your tears to embrace us. Others are confused and cynical and we need something authentic and true, and are hoping that we might find it here. What is common among all of us is that we are made to know and worship you, and that it's no accident that you've gathered us here this morning. Would you meet us in your word? Would you step into our lives in the way that we need you to, perhaps in ways that we are not aware we need and don't expect? But Father, draw us to you as we talk about this text in the Gospel of Luke. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Many of us grew up watching Mr. Rogers on PBS. He was our neighbor, and he was a great neighbor. He was known for his calm and his patience and his unflappable character on TV. But what was he like behind the scenes? What was he like off the camera? Most that knew him say that he was basically Mr. Rogers, he was the same person on and off screen. And so there are no YouTube videos you can find of him going off on someone and yelling at them. You can't find him slugging a reporter in anger. Nor are there any newsreels of him coming apart at the seams and having a tearful press conference. If one surfaced, it would be very jarring because it would seem so out of character for Mr. Rogers, our nice neighbor, to go off on someone. Out-of-character actions startle us. And since our images of Jesus 
often kind of look like Mr. Rogers, without the cardigan, of course. When we read this passage, we're probably a little bit startled. A weeping Jesus, a sobbing Savior, isn't that sort of improper? Isn't that lacking the religious decorum that is proper for a rabbi? What about an angry Jesus? What about a Jesus that comes into the temple and throws over tables? Isn't that a little extreme? This passage gives us two very unsettling images of Jesus, back to back, pole to pole. One minute, he's weeping violently, and the next minute, he's throwing over tables in the temple. Now, of course, it didn't happen exactly like that. There's some interval of time. But we can all imagine times where we've been crying and then later in the day, we're extremely angry and raged over some, something that's been done to us, maybe even in the same hour. But you see, Luke squashes these two events, though they might be separated by a number of hours or a few days in time. He squashes them together to make a point theologically, to force us to wrestle with a tearful and angry Savior. How do we reconcile these two poles, these two emotions, these two actions that Jesus has? Jesus' tears and his judgment, his love and his anger. Do we really want a weeping Savior? Do we really want a Savior who throws over tables when he becomes angry? We're going to see just three things, three types of king that Jesus is. He's a confronting king. He's a confounding king, and he's a conquering king. Let's look first of all how he confronts. He's a confronting king. Now, Luke's been telling us since chapter 9, over half of this gospel narrative, over half of what he chooses to tell us about Jesus' life is him on his way to Jerusalem. He frames everything in relation to him being on his way to Jerusalem. There's something important about that. There's some reason he needs to be there. There's some reason that he's going to the holy city. And everything is narrated in terms of that. He keeps preparing us, readers, the king is coming. The king is coming. And if we didn't already know the ending, we'd expect this monumental affair, this great coronation ceremony, a huge regal affair, more than anything, beyond anything that the world has ever seen before. Now, it was beyond anything that the world had ever seen before or again, but not in regalia and not in pomp and circumstance. Instead, a weeping, humble, self-sacrificial king comes into Jerusalem on a colt. He comes and dies on a cross, forgiving the very ones that have put him there. If this is the king, it's the strangest king that any of us have ever seen or could ever imagine. He comes to the city. He's been on this journey since chapter 9. He's coming to the holy city, his city, God's city, Jerusalem. And he stands outside, and as he looks over the city, what does he do? He breaks down in tears. He falls apart sobbing. And this is not just your kind of boohoo. This is an actual sob, a weep, a lament. He's wailing. It's a river of tears over Jerusalem and the state that it's in. 
Now, unless you're one of our more seasoned citizens in the congregation, you probably don't know who Edmund Muskie is. But at a time, he was a very famous and -and up-and-coming politician. He was the governor and then senator of Maine. And in 1972, everyone was thinking he's going to be the Democratic nominee for president. He would have become a household name. But someone attacked his wife in print. And then he had a press conference to defend his wife and started crying on TV, or at least that's what was said. I watched it this week, and it is debatable. He came out later and said, well, actually, because it was snowing, snowflakes were on his face, and it was those that were streaming down his face, not tears. But why did he have to defend himself? Why did he have to have another press conference and announce, oh, I wasn't really crying? Because it destroyed his campaign. His campaign never recovered because of that one moment on TV that was captured in a time where he might be crying. Not weeping, not lamenting, but just just crying. Just a twinge of sadness because someone had attacked his wife. Even today we have entire news news shows that are devoted to covering the fact that John Boehner has cried one more time exploring the psychological dimensions of Hillary Clinton crying at an overseas event. Why are we so infatuated with people crying? What does it tell us about our comfort level with tears? We may do it at home, but we certainly don't want our leaders doing it. We don't want a president who weeps. It's a sign of weakness. It's a sign of vulnerability. What will they do when they pick up the phone to another world leader? What if they start crying? What would happen? We can't have a president that cries. And who wants a king like that? If we want our politicians to be cool and level-headed, defiant in the face of difficulty, who wants a crying, weeping king? But you see, Jesus has no problem with that. He has no problem not simply crying, but weeping and lamenting. What is he crying about? What has got him so agitated and so sad that he breaks down in tears? He says, if only, if only Jerusalem, you recognize the things that made for your peace. If only you had recognized that. He wept because other people were missing out. He wept because these people who had been called to inhabit His house had missed it. They didn't recognize the Messiah when he came. They didn't know the things that made for peace. Now, what is peace here? Because we have these ideas of what peace is, and it's generally the cessation of violence. It's the cessation of an argument within a relationship, but that's not what he's promising here. Peace is this grand Hebrew word. It's not the cessation of violence and oppression that he's offering immediately from the Roman Empire. He wasn't offering an end to their political problems, nor is it just this inner tranquility, this individual sense of well-being. He wasn't offering either an immediate end to their emotional problems. But peace is this grand word, which means harmony in, in all of creation, harmony between humanity and God, justice reigning, reconciliation, and all of this was promised in the Hebrew Bible to come when God's Messiah came, 
bringing salvation in all of its dimensions, physical, mental, social, and yes, spiritual. What the Messiah does, what Jesus does, he comes and says, I will fix all that you've done to make a mess of my creation. I will fix all that you've done to make a mess of your own life, and I will not require one thing from you. It will not cost you anything except receive me. Make me your king. I will bring peace. And they say, no. In fact, very soon, they seek to kill him. So let's get this straight. The religious leaders are in Jerusalem. They've been primed looking for the Messiah. When is he going to come? They've tried to live holy lives expecting the Messiah to come. And when he does, they reject him and kill him. How can they be looking for him? How can Jesus come into the city doing miracles? How can all of these reports be given about him, that he is the one, he's the coming king, that the crowds hang on his words, and yet the religious leaders reject him and kill him? How do we reconcile that? David Foster Wallace, who I quoted in your bulletin, was a great writer. He died a few years ago, tragically, of suicide. He's writing from outside the religious community, looking in, but he understands us, you and I, if we're part of a religious community very well. He says, if you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. If you worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths and proverbs, cliches, parables. It's the skeleton of every great story. If you worship power, you'll feel weak and afraid. You'll need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. If you worship your intellect as being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud on the verge of being found out. The insidious things about these forms of worship is that they are default settings. They are the kind of worship that you gradually slip into day after day, getting more selective about what you see and how you measure value without ever being fully aware that that's what you're doing. And the world will not discourage you from operating on your default settings because the world of men and money and power hums along quite nicely on the fuel of fear and contempt and frustration and craving and the worship of self. Our own present culture has harnessed these forces in ways that have yielded extraordinary wealth and comfort and personal freedom. The freedom to be lords of our own tiny skull-sized kingdoms, alone at the center of all creation. We would love Jesus to come and give us really good advice. We'd love Jesus to come and help us to become a nicer, more gentle, more moral person. We'd love to help him, have him help us learn a method of spirituality. But he doesn't come to do that. Jesus isn't an addition to our lives. Jesus isn't a seminar. 
He's not a 12-step program. He presents himself to these religious leaders, to Jerusalem, and to you and I as a radically subversive king. You see, we actually do understand these religious leaders' response. As absurd as it seems, you and I do this very thing every day, even from within the church, even from leadership in the church, even pastors. Because we don't want a king like Jesus any more than they did. We don't want Jesus as king because we know at some level that it's going to end our own kingship. It means an end to the monarchy of self. Jesus comes as a radically subversive king. He uproots our kingdoms. He topples them over. He throws them over just like he does in the temple. He is a confronting king, but he confronts in tears. He's a confronting king, but he's also a confounding king. Now, maybe you are not as put off by Jesus weeping as others might be, but what about an angry Savior? What about a king who predicts judgment? How can he go from weeping to judgment, to anger in these very towards these very same people. He's weeping outside the city gates for the choices that they've made and then storms in and drives them out. This is where many modern people, especially Portlanders, will get off the train. We're okay maybe with a sensitive Jesus, but not an angry, judgmental Jesus, not one who actually expects to be king over your life. What can we say about this? What can we say about Jesus to help understand him and his anger? First of all, is it so difficult to believe? Is it so difficult to understand that Jesus, the king, might be angry? If you care about someone, if you have a child and they're making terrible choices and destroying themselves in the process, don't you understand both weeping and anger? If your loved one is struggling with some addiction, don't you kind of oscillate between deep compassion, deep sadness, and then also rage where you want to run through the house and tear up all of the tools of addiction? He says in verse 43, the days will come on you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground and the children within your walls. He is being a loving, caring parent. In fact, love demands that you tell someone. Love demands that you come to them and you say, look, here is the logical outcome of your behavior. If you worship self, if you reject me, then you're going to end up needing more and more, and it will drive you into the ground. That's what Jesus is saying. He is bringing tidings of the future judgment. He is telling them about how their lives are going to turn out. Therefore, repent. Come back to me. When you're dealing with someone with self-destructive behavior, if you truly love them, it won't do to simply be sad and grieved. Love compels you to take action, to help the person see what they need to see. Is it so difficult to understand that Jesus is grieved with what is going on in Jerusalem. But secondly, we need to see that Jerusalem is a concept as well as a place. 
It's a metonym for the religious infrastructure and the officials who maintain it. These people weren't ignorant. He's not talking primarily here about judgment on people who, through no fault of their own, don't know anything about who God is. Jesus here is angry not towards outsiders, but insiders. He's angry, and he's predicting a coming fall for this obstinate religious class who've put themselves at the top of the food chain. They've set up a religious system that's self-referential and self-preserving, self-perpetuating, and is close to the nature of the kingdom of God as Jesus brings it. In other words, these people aren't only harming themselves. Just like any addict, just like any self-destructive behavior doesn't just harm the person, it harms the environment. These people are harming not only themselves, but others. They are bending God's mission in on itself to serve their own interests. Doesn't this reframe his anger and his judgment somewhat? All of a sudden, it's not his anger, but it's his weeping that's so profound and hard to grasp. It's his compassion that's confounding. You and I get angry over relatively small things, or at least I do. I'll speak for myself. I get angry in traffic. When I'm on my bike, I see everyone else that's in a car as, be, as driving this big oil-guzzling behemoth that's destroying the world, and they need to get out of my way. When I'm in my oil-guzzling SUV, however, I want the bikers to get out of my way. They're an impediment to my process and my progress. So we honk our horns. Maybe we give people the finger. We become enraged at the slightest provocation. What does Jesus weep about? What does he become sad about? He weeps over the very same people who in a matter of days will take him to the cross, will beat him to death. His anger is not punitive, but it's restorative. His anger is not in the form of gloating. It's not in the form of revenge, but it's an anger towards spiritual blindness. It's an anger towards the fact that they are not only harming themselves, but they have set up what should have been the gift to God for all people, and they've made it about themselves. Now, how do we see that? How does that come through? We've seen it all through Luke, but let's fi finish finally by looking at the conquering king. Hopefully you're trusting me enough that I know what I'm talking about, that he's talking about the insiders primarily and not the outsiders. But where is this coming from particularly in these passages? He quotes two Old Testament passages, and he brings them together. He takes two fragments, and he lines them up as if they're one. My house will be a house of prayer, Isaiah 56, which we read earlier. And then, but you have made it a den of robbers or a den of thieves, Jeremiah 7. House of prayer. You notice, as we read it earlier, there's an addendum. There's another part to house of prayer. What is the temple supposed to be? What is the kingdom of God supposed to be? It's a house of prayer for all nations. The temple was supposed to be a gift of God to humanity. It was the place where heaven and earth were squashed together, where God met with his people, both symbolically and really. His presence dwelled in one place in order for his presence to be distributed all over the world. It was a house of prayer, not for Israel only, but for all 
nations. All nations were to be invited in, so much so that in the very architecture of the temple, there was a court that was, that was uh, just for Gentiles. In fact, it was the largest part of the, of the temple. When you came in, that was where the Gentiles prayed. This is where the money changers have set up court. This is where commerce is now going on. This place that's been reserved for all nations to come in, to stream into God's kingdom and pray and meet with the real God, they've been pushed out, and now it's just there for commerce and money changing. There was a popular notion that when the Messiah came, he would finally drive out all these foreigners. He would get rid of all these unwashed masses that are gathering in Jerusalem and at the temple. And so if that's true, why don't we just save him the trouble? I mean, we've got all this space. It's the biggest place in the temple. We need to exchange money so that pilgrims can come and they can exchange money and do the sacrifices. So why don't we just set up shop right here? But when Jesus comes, he doesn't throw out the foreigners. He doesn't throw out the aliens. He doesn't throw out the outsiders. Jesus comes and throws out those who are using God to make a buck. He comes and throws out those who, through their own religious process, through their own religious infrastructure, were separating themselves from others. The temple was to be the center of mission and outreach. It was to be a worship center to enfold other people, and yet it became a place that was turned inside on itself. It became a place for insiders. It became a place for religious practitioners. Instead of a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus said, you've made it a den of robbers. This comes from Jeremiah 7, and we'll conclude with this. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name, and say, we are safe, (laughs) safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Wow. It's an indictment of all of those who use religion to mask a heart that's very far from God. In fact, to insulate them from meeting the true God. If we can just keep up our religious practices, then God won't really bother us. We won't have to deal with the weeping, angry king. We can deal with Jesus as just kind of a God of the gaps. He kind of fills in where I'm imperfect and makes up for my lack. You come into my house and say, you're safe because you do these things? You can be safe because you're part of my kingdom, ethnically speaking, you're safe? No, no, no. You've missed it. If you want to have your tables turned over by Jesus, friends, this is how you do it. I know the catechism. I'm a leader in the church. I've read all the right books. I give away my money. I come to church regularly. I'm safe. To Luke, throughout Luke, we've seen the insiders who try to placate God with their outward appearance. We've seen Luke jeering at them and poking a finger at them and saying through the depiction of Jesus coming to meet them that they've missed it. 
Jesus sees these people and he walks right into their homes. He walks right up to them on the street and says, you've missed it. I see right through you. At the same time, he walks into the homes of the worst people in town and brings them mercy. He sits at their table and breaks bread with them. The most dangerous place in God's economy is right in the middle of church. The most dangerous place in all of the Bible is in the middle of a religious community that's turned inside, turned in on itself. In-towners, insiders. We began to talk last week in our meeting about what it means to be a church that exists for outsiders, that exists to be a missional outpost into our community. Are we? We need to be vigilant at asking this question. Are we a religious community that has been set up to serve insiders and develops this infrastructure so that we can pat ourselves on the back and go about our business? Are we a religious community where Jesus, the real Jesus, the weeping, the angry king can come in and say, this is mine, now go and take the message of the good news. We need to be vigilant at turning this lens upon ourselves and saying, who are we? In Annie Dillard's wonderful memoir, devotional book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, she says, On the whole, I do not find Christians outside of the catacombs sufficiently sensible of conditions. Does anyone have the foggiest idea of what sort of power we so blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, making up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews in case God should show up. Kind of extreme, huh? But Jesus, who unites such apparent extremes of character, of sobbing and anger into a balanced and perfect whole, in the end, demands an extreme response from you and I. He throws open the doors of salvation to everyone and then warns the most devout insiders that they have no claim upon him. And it forces our hands. Don't placate me with your religious posturing. Don't patronize me by letting me help you manage your own life. Those who encountered Jesus may have been confronted by him. They may have been confounded by him, but they weren't confused. They knew that they had to crown him or kill him. No one left Jesus' presence and said, my, what an interesting guy that Jesus is. He doesn't come to offer us sage advice, but to be our king. But he's the weeping king. He's the sobbing king who doesn't come to take up power and to take away your life, but to lay down his life so that you can have it forever. He gives up his freedom so that you can be set free, set free even from yourself. He receives violence so that you can have peace to deliver you from your sin and your guilt and your shame. And this comes when we don't try and please him with our religious posturing nor keep him on the periphery of life, but only when we give ourselves fully to him. He's the conquering king. He comes to conquer you and I, but he comes to topple the monarchy of self so that you can have peace, 
so that you can have rest. He's the conquering king who comes in tears so that he can wipe away yours. Let him begin to do that this morning, right now. Let's pray. Father, we are a community that needs your tears. We are a community that needs to know that your tears are real, that you weep with those who weep. Father, we're also a community that needs to know that your hatred of sin and your hatred of all the ways that we go about life trying to distance ourselves from you, all the while claiming to be intimate with you and know you fully. Father, I pray that both of those things together, that that perfect balance, that perfect whole would draw us to you, that we would see it as the gospel, that we would see it as a hope for finally resting. Lord, I pray that you would do this as we continue in worship, as we confess our faith, as we come to your table. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.